Are any of you risk takers like that? Any daredevils? Risk? Okay, there's a few. Good, good, good. Um, the last couple of years, our family has gone skiing in Michigan. And as we've gone skiing as a family, our uh, two daughters, we had to give them some ski lessons because my wife and I were not that good to do that. And both of them were really scared. And they were fearful at the very beginning to do this. They did not want to take very many risks. But the ski instructor worked with them pretty well. And my oldest daughter, Jordan, uh, she actually is pretty athletic and she picked up on things very quickly. And after the first day of being on the bunny slope, she actually graduated and she was able to go on to the regular slopes. But the second day, my youngest daughter, Shiloh, she was still not able to go on the big slopes. And so it was a big to-do, and she was upset that she wasn't with her sister. But she was determined that by day three, she was going to be on the slopes. And on day three, she graduated from the actual, uh, you know, ski school as well. And she was able to go and to ski that entire day also. Now, on day three, my little daredevil right there got on the lift, and as she's going up on the lift, you could see that the fear that was in her eyes on the bunny hill was totally gone, and she was ready to take some risks. And I told her, I said, Shiloh, we're going to go down some, uh, you know, smaller kind of hills first, so just follow me. And... I'm going down to one of the smaller ones. I look back and Shiloh is nowhere to be found. She has gone to the left to the Black Diamond Hill. That is one of the most difficult and the biggest risks that you could take because she is a risk taker. And so she gets on that particular hill and I see her going down and I start yelling, Shiloh, stop, stop. But she doesn't stop. She goes barreling down. I run it, or I ski up the hill a little bit. Then I start skiing down as fast as I can, and I knew I was going to experience disaster of my daughter. Hopefully she wasn't dead. And as I come down, there it is. All of her equipment is spread out all over the place. In skiing language, they call that a yard sale. What that means is that every equipment that you have is like a yard sale. It's everywhere, and so I'm picking this up, and I get close to her, and I'm expecting that she is just going to be crying and distraught and everything. And I look down, and she's got this snot going down her nose. And she looks up at me, and she goes, Dad, that was awesome. Now, she continued to risk again and again and again that entire day and the rest of the trip. And sometimes... I wonder to myself, why am I not as big of a risk taker as my youngest daughter is? And I don't just mean on skiing, but in her faith. She's a kid who will pray out loud in front of other people with no fear whatsoever. She's the type of kid that will go to her kindergarten and first grade class and tell me, did you know so-and-so and so-and-so doesn't know Jesus? But I'm talking to him about it. She's the kind of kid who, 
easily will have a conversation with a stranger and go, do you know who Jesus is? And sometimes I think to myself, I'm a risk taker when it comes to skiing or even when it comes to my driving or maybe when it comes to my finances. But sometimes when it comes to my faith, I'm not a risk taker. I'm a scaredy cat. I'm just scared of what I need to do. Have you ever wondered why you don't take more risk in your own faith? I mean, you think about what God's done in your life, the amazing way that He has cleared all the sins from your life, and He has great things for you, and yet sometimes you ever wonder, why don't I take more risk for Him? Why, when is, why is it when you have an opportunity to share your faith, why do you hold back and you're quiet? Why are you silent? Have you ever wondered... Why is it that I'm willing to take a lot of risk in a lot of different areas of my life, but not when it comes to my Christian walk? You know, often people will come up to me and say, well, Chris, I'd like to, I just don't know how to. Or Chris, I I would like to, but I just don't feel very equipped. Well, I think almost every single Christ follower, regardless of who you are, that at some point in your life, you ask those questions. But today, what I want to encourage you and what I want to help you with is how you can take more risk. How you can be a risk taker when it comes to your faith. And I'd like to do that by beginning by us looking at one of the greatest risk takers in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Moses. Moses is a person who takes a huge risk. God asked him to go to the most powerful leader in all of Egypt, a guy by the name of Pharaoh. And God tells him to go to him and say, and and to tell him, I need you to let God's people go. And you might say, well, that doesn't seem like that risky. The only problem, folks, was there were two million people who had been in slavery for 400 years, and now Moses is going to the greatest ruler during this time to say, hey, will you let God's people go? Now, if you're a leader, and they're all slaves, and they're doing all the work in your country, how quickly do you want to let those people go? Not very quick. And so God has to amp it up a little bit, and he sends these ten plagues. And finally, the last plague comes, and Moses is given the ability to lead for 400 years all they had known was slavery. And now Pharaoh goes, go, you can go. And they start taking off. And they head out to the Red Sea. And they're thinking, well, this won't be a problem. We'll be able to make some boats. We'll camp. We'll do something to get across. But Pharaoh finally realizes, that's my workers. They're the ones that have built my entire kingdom. We are going to bring them back. And they all get close and they get to the Red Sea finally. And Pharaoh and his army are barreling down. And Moses thinks to himself, there's no way. We're done. But then he looks to all these people, these two million people that had followed him, and he's like, 
I took a risk and God came through and now I'm going to take another risk. And he takes the staff and he holds it up and he says, God, I know you have all power to do all things. Get us across this sea. And God does this mighty miracle. He parts the Red Sea and the Israelites are able to go across. And when Pharaoh and his men get about halfway there, God releases the water again and all of Pharaoh's enemy or all of Pharaoh and the Israelite enemies are destroyed. And after this, Moses' sister, Miriam, she starts writing a song. That's what Israelites would do whenever God would show up and he would do something great. They would do things like, like writing a song. And in Exodus chapter 15, Miriam writes this song and she starts singing this song and it catches on. And pretty soon it's like on the billboard top 40, man. And like all of these, you know, two million people are singing this song. And that's what the Israelites would do sometimes. When God would show up and he would do something great, they'd write a song. And other times, when God would show up and they would do something great, they would actually name the city or the place that they were at after God. But there was another practice, too, that God's people did. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses goes up to see God, and there's this conversation that's going on. And God says to Moses, I want Israel to be my people. Will they be my people? And Moses leads from Mount Sinai and he walks down and he tells the people, will you be God's people? And they're all in one voice. They're like, we will, we'll be God's people. And so in the morning, Moses gets up and he builds an altar, sacrifices some animals. And then he sets up these 12 large stones all around. And if you were to walk around Israel or Palestine today, you would still see some of these particular pillars that are there. And these stones, they would tell a story. Here's one picture here, and then we'll look at another picture. From Gilgal. And these stones are represented there. Every one of these stories, every single one of them tells a story of how God showed up. But there's more to it. There's another story in Joshua chapter 4. Joshua now is leading the people, and they come to the edge of the Jordan River. And the Jordan River literally means to descend. It starts at the... We'll we'll show a map here right now so you can see it. So the Jordan River, it starts at Mount Hermon. And at the base of Mount Hermon... It's a 1,000 feet above sea level, and it descends 156 miles down to the Dead Sea, which is at the lowest point, which is 1,300 feet below sea level. It's the lowest point on earth. And there's this fast-moving river. And on the other side of this is the promised land, the promised land that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joshua has a whole nation with him. And he's like, that's where we're supposed to go. And all the people are like, are you serious? Do you see this river? Do you see how fast it is? There's no way we can get to the other side. And God says, have the priests who are holding the Ark of the Covenant step up into the Jordan River. And I will cut off the flow of the river. And I will allow Israel to pass. And God does this, and one by one, they begin to start 
walking across the Jordan River. And Joshua said, I remember that God did this one time. We took a risk then and God came through and we'll take a risk again. And we're praying that God will come through. And then at the end of all of this, God actually makes a commitment and he says, I want you to build a memorial. And so in Joshua chapter 4, it will come up on the side screens, we read this. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So whenever you see these stones in Israel or Palestine, and they're still there today, when you see those stones, what this stone really means is the Hebrew word, Massavah. Let's all say that out loud together. You haven't said that today, have you? All right, let's say that out. Massavoth, okay? One, two, three. Massavoth. And it's synonymous with asking a question. What happened here? What happened here? And so when parents would be taking their children and they're walking down a road or a place and they would see these different pillars that were up these rocks, uh, the kids would start saying, Massavoth, Massavoth, Massavoth. And they're asking, what's happened here? And then the parents would tell them, well, on this particular time, God came through. God showed up. Or disciples who were following rabbis. Rabbis would be walking through the hills of Israel and Palestine. And as they're walking, they would see this and they go, Massavah, Rabbi, what happened here? And the rabbi would begin to start telling the story of what God did, of how he showed up. Now, what's fascinating to me is that this simple question, what happened here, is something that Peter, later on in the New Testament, takes a hold of, but he takes it to a whole nother level. He understood this concept, and this is what he says in Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. He says this, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him. Who is the living stone that was rejected by human beings? Jesus Christ himself. Peter's saying, Jesus is the living stone. Verse 5. But you also, church, are like living stones, and you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And so, Peter's going, I know about Massavoth, but I'm telling you what happened for all time, that when the living stone came, he came, and now he's saying to you, I want you to be living stones just like Jesus. Verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession 
that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness. Remember last week we talked about our life when we go through a fall and we go through a struggle, when we go through darkness into His wonderful light. And we talked about redemption and being restored and made new. And this is what Peter is saying, that every single one who follows Jesus Christ, you are a treasured child of the Most High God. You are a part of a family. You are a part of a royal priesthood. You have been chosen for this. And this living stone has a story. And now this living stone is saying to you, I want you to share my story. I want you to tell my story to anyone and everyone that you would see. Then Peter takes it even one step further. In chapter 3, verse 15, he says this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So what Peter is saying is your, stone, your, your life, your life is a living stone. Your life is a living stone. That your life should force people, that when people see you, they should be forced to go, Massive off! Massive off! What's happened here? What's happened in your life? That your life should be in such a way that whether you're at home or you're at work or you're in the neighborhood, that people are constantly coming up to you. They're going, Massabot, what happened here? There's something different about you. There's something going on in your life. Like, tell me what has happened to you. Tell me why you're choosing to live the way that you live. Several years ago, a nine-year-old boy named Austin Gutwine had watched a video of children whose parents had died of AIDS. And he started watching this video and he started realizing that these parents that were taken away from their kids, that the suffering that these kids were experiencing, that these kids were no different than him. And Austin sensed a a whisper from God that he needed to take a risk. And so this is the risk that the nine-year-old took. He decided that he would figure out exactly how many children in the world lost parents in a particular time. And when they would lose those parents, he would go ahead and take a basketball and he would shoot one for each child that had lost a parent. And he found out that through research, 2,057 children were left orphaned by the death of their parents due to AIDS. In the very first year, he shot 2,057, and he raised $3,000 that was given to World Vision to help for orphan kids who had lost their parents due to AIDS. Now, since that moment, in 2004, this one kid who in his yard was just shooting 2,057 free throws, it went from that to a few other kids, and then his school, and then multiple schools, and across the nation, there are schools after schools with this hoops for hope concept. That there would be these kids that would shoot hoops for hope. And today, 12 years later, anyone want to guess how much money this kid raised? $2.5 million for orphans 
in the world. And today, there are orphans who have been adopted. There are schools that have been built. There are medical facilities that are taking place. Food, clothing, shelter, all of that. All traces back to a kid who simply had a dream that God might show up if he shot some hoops. And a few years ago, during the Final Four, I saw this story of Austin Gutwein. And they brought Ashley Judd to interview him. And for six minutes, while millions of people are watching college basketball, he gets to tell about how shooting these free throws changed lives of people. And essentially, this is what Ashley Judd was asking. Massive odds. Austin, Austin, tell me what happened here. And before millions of people on CBS, he was able to say, because of the hope that I have in Jesus Christ, I had to do something for these kids. And this is what's happened. And now Austin is 21 years old. He's still running the organization. And think about the impact that he has had on Thousands and thousands of lives. Folks, I love this story so much because it so innocently shows that one person choosing to take a risk, choosing to take a risk to shoot a free throw, and to do it over and over again can have a huge impact. And you know, I look at that story, and I think, man, God... Look what you did. He was nine years old when he first started this, and now he's 21. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I wonder to myself, Chris Bunch, is anyone saying to you, Massivo? Is anyone asking you regularly, Chris, on a regular basis, what has happened here? Are you compelling enough to do anything to have people to ask that question? And sometimes when I look in the mirror, folks, to be quite honest, I look in the mirror and sometimes I think to myself, you're way too safe. You're way too safe. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I think to myself, all you do is hang out with Christians. That's all you do. You just hang out with Christians. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I think to myself, Chris, is your story very compelling? Are people coming to you and saying, Massivo! What's happened here? But this is what I know, folks, is that I don't want to stay there. I don't want to stay there, and I don't want you to stay there either. So for the rest of our time, I want to give you four values of what it means to be a risk taker. Four values of what it means to be a risk taker for God. So, rather than being a scaredy cat, how can you be a risk taker? This is your first fill-in. It's in your program. You can do it on your app as well. But here's the first kind of value to be a risk taker. It is to live intentionally. That you would actually live intentionally. That you go deep with Jesus. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is in John 15, 5, and Jesus proclaims these words. 
He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Who's the vine again? Jesus, yeah. Who's the branches? We are. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. But to be honest, I think some of us, if we were to be very truthful right now, many times we go to Jesus and we say this, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Jesus, you remain in me. And when we do that, folks, we get it wrong. You see, to live intentionally means you wake up in the morning and you go, God, I need your presence in my life today. Because if my life is going to make any difference whatsoever on this particular day, it's going to be because you choose to show up in the midst of it and you explain to me how I can express my life for you to others. You see, folks, it's only in and through Jesus Christ that you're ever able to bear any fruit whatsoever. Apart from me, he says, you can do what? Nothing. Folks, at the core of who we are, it's waking up in the morning and it's saying, God, you know what? Yesterday, regardless of what it was, today I want to live intentionally for you. I want to live intentionally for you. And folks, that's the core of who you have to be. If you are a Christ follower, is that you wake up every morning and you say, God, I want to live intentionally for you. Abide in you. Remain in you. Second value. We show up with great expectancy. Your next fill-in. We show up with great expectancy. The best risk takers that I know that I've ever watched before are people who live such a compelling life that their life demands an explanation. That people want to know what's different about you. And when they walk through life, they walk through life expecting that God's going to show up. These are the kind of people who they identify the places that they frequent regularly and they're praying before they ever walk into that place. They're actually praying in such a way that they're saying, you know what, I am the pastor of this place. When I walk in there, I'm the pastor of this place. They would say, you know what, when I walk into Starbucks, these people matter to me. All of these people in this place, they really, really matter to me. And I'm going to care for them. I'm going to love them. I'm praying that God would do something here. When they go to the gym, they go and they work out and they go, these people, I know these people. These are people that God can use me to reach out to. These are my people. And then when you go to the hairstylist, You just gossip about all those other people that are in there, right? No, I'm joking. But you go to the hairstylist, right? And you drive there, and before you ever get there, you're already praying, God, help me to be able to reach out to the hairstylist, to reach out to the person who's going to do my nails today, to show your love, to show your kindness. 
Psalm 139, 7 and 8. David, the greatest king in the Old Testament. Here's the king. And he's crying out to God, and this is what he says. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Folks, the presence and the spirit of God is everywhere. There is not a place that you walk or that you drive through that God's presence isn't there. Every place that you enter, whether it's your workplace or school or a restaurant or in your neighborhood, there is redemptive possibilities all around. And God is saying, can I use you? God wants to use you in that place. And when you have that moment that you're living intentionally, and you have that moment in which you're expecting God to actually show up and do something, and you're in His Word and you're in His Spirit, because you find yourself entering the place going, God, what are you doing here? God, how do you want to use me in this place? You're expecting, you're on your toes, you're expecting something to actually happen. And you're saying, God, how are you going to do this? Last Sunday after church, my uh, parents said, hey, you want to go to lunch? I said, sure. And they said, well, we're going to go to Bruner's. Anyone ever been to Bruner's before? Bruner's is like a landmark of Muncie. If you haven't been there, you need to move to another city. No, I'm just joking. But they were at Bruner's, and they got there before I did. And I was helping to tear down, and we got all done. And I get there, and I walked in, and I was so excited. You know why I was excited? I was the sixth youngest person in that whole place. I counted. I really did. I counted. Like all the kids, and I was the sixth youngest. Like, that's not too bad, you know. And so I went to go sit at my table, and the server comes up to me, and she goes, hi. And then all of a sudden, she starts telling me about my parents and how great they are and wonderful. And I'm looking at this lady. I've never seen her before in my life. And I'm thinking, you don't know this lady either. What's going on, you know? And so she leaves to go get my Salisbury steak. And when she left, I go, Mom, Dad, well, like what happened? And they're so, well, when we got here, we just let her know that God loved her. And we loved her. And we started engaging in a conversation with her. And we heard her story a little bit. And pretty soon we just invited her to the jar. And we said, our son's late. He's the pastor. But when he gets here, we'll introduce you. And all of this took place, folks. Because this is the thing with my mom and dad. Bruner's is their church. When they walk into Bruner's, they expect God to show up. And then when they walk in there, these aren't just people that are serving them. These are God's creations that they get an opportunity to be able to show love and kindness to. You know the problem with many of us? We don't ever show up anywhere expectantly. 
We never show up thinking, God, I'm already prayed up. I'm just expecting you to show up and do something right now. And you know why we're not? Because we did a series on this called Margin. We're hurried. We're thinking only for ourselves. We're on a one-track mind. We got our phone out. We're texting people. We're talking. We see no one else around us at all because we're heading in one direction. And that's it. And we walk into the restaurant and we see no one. And then if we do see someone, we get real judgmental. Like, why aren't they serving me faster? Why aren't they doing this? And we fail to see people who God's created. And I don't know if you've ever done that before where you you haven't been present at all and you're walking back to your car and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit like prompts you and you're like, man, I just missed a moment. I had a moment right here and I missed it. And we cry out like Jacob did when he said these words. God was in this place and I did not know. God was in this place and I did not know. Folks, God's everywhere. Do you have his eyes when you go into restaurants or your workplace looking? Do you have expectation that he's going to actually show up? So we live intentionally. We lead our life in such a way that, such a way that we have great expectancy. And then finally, if you're a risk taker, here's the third value You spark ongoing connection. You actually choose to say, I'm going to spark an ongoing connection. And folks, this is where a lot of us, we never get to this point. And you know why? Because we're afraid. This is the point where we have to get beyond our fear. We're prayed up. We're we're expecting God to show up. And now we have to go into the break room at work or we have to go to the restaurant, or we have to go to the neighborhood, and now we actually have to spark a conversation. And I bet for most of you, it is the scariest point that you're going to have to actually open your mouth and begin a conversation with someone that you know or you don't know. And many of you are like, oh, Chris, Chris, Chris. You did real good on the first two. I love God. I expect God to do things. But if I have to actually now speak or have a conversation, not so sure about that. I don't want to do that. You know what the scariest place on planet Earth for me is? This place right here. Lowe's. When I get ready to go to Lowe's, I am so scared. And do you know why I'm scared? Because I can't fix a single thing. And every time I go to Lowe's, I get heart palpitations. I'm not telling I'm telling you the truth. I do because I know those doors are going to open up and I'm going to have to walk in there. And you know what I'm going to have to do? I've got to go find someone with a red vest. I've got to go find someone else, and I've got to let them know, I am clueless, I'm an idiot, I don't know anything, but can you help me? 
And I have to go to that person. I have to ask them, you know, this thing is leaking and I don't even know. And fluorescent bulbs. I've seen all these light bulbs, but where are the fluorescent ones? And, you know, I've got to get a piece of wood that's like this, but I don't even know where that's at. And usually that person is so kind and generous and they're like, well, I'll coach you. I'll help you. I'll, I'll kind of help you through whatever this situation is. You know, I don't know if you know the logo for Lowe's or not, but it's let's build something together. And every time I walk into Lowe's and I go to one of these red vest people, they're like, hey, 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 let's build something together. And they take me in and there's these conversations that take place. And folks, if you're nervous or you're fearful... When you walk into your workplace or you walk into school or you walk into McDonald's or you walk into Lowe's, what you need to do is simply ask God, God, let's do this together. Let's build this thing together. You say, God, let's do this thing together. Would you give me your heart? Would you give me your eyes to be able to see? Would you allow me to have the kind of conversations that will draw people to me so that I get to know them, so that I can direct them and point them directly to you? Do this, God, so I could know their story and then they could know my story and they could know your story. And the key word for this point, folks, is ongoing. It has to be an ongoing conversation. It's not a one-time deal. It's not one and done. You've got to build consistency with people. Twelve years ago, when we first started the JAR, we put our office on Main Street. We rented a place. We had 350 square feet for four people. That included a bathroom. It was not a pleasant experience when someone used the bathroom, I can tell you. And during that time, what would happen is I would go and I'd frequent this subway that's downtown. And I never forget walking in there. And there was a person there that was very pleasant and kind and very warm. And her name was Melissa. And I got to know her. But after a few years, we outgrew that space. And we moved to the northwest side. And I stopped going to subway to eat. Well, five months ago... God opened up a door for us to have our own building that we can have office space and gatherings and people to come and groups to meet in. And it's on Main Street again. And so I've started frequenting, again, the subway that's downtown. And when I walked in for the very first time, there was Melissa, this kind, generous, loving person, but she wasn't an entry-level person anymore. It was her store. She was the manager of the whole store. And so we started talking and connecting, and I'd never had any spiritual conversation with her before. I just was building a friendship with her. And one particular day I walked in, and one of her employees was a person who attends here at the JAR, And the person was excited to see me, and they're like, Hey, Melissa, I want you to introduce, I want to introduce you to my pastor. And Melissa looked at me, and she's like, You're a pastor? Now, I don't know if that's a compliment or not, folks, but uh, she wasn't so sure. 
And I said, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm a pastor. And, and so we started talking more. And I, w- I walk in there, and they know me. I know them. I give them a hard time, bring them candy. And I finally took the guts a couple of weeks ago to invite her to come. And she said, hey, I, I want to come, and I'm going to bring the employee to, and we're going to come together. And I know there's a day that that's going to happen. And this is what I want you to know, folks. When you plant seeds into people's lives, you can't just run away. You have to water the seeds. You have to till the seeds. You have to love the seeds. And within time, what happens is that it grows and it bears fruit. And when you show up with great expectancy, God will open up the conversation. When you show up with expectancy, boy, I'm struggling with that today, expectancy, God will open up the conversation. I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 4. He says this, Be wise in the way that you act with people who are not believers, making the most of every opportunity. When you talk, you should always be kind and pleasant to them so that they'll be able to answer that you'll be able to answer everyone in the way that you should. Folks, make the most of every opportunity. Every place that you walk into, every neighborhood street that you walk down, that you make the most of these conversations, that you take risk. And when you take risk, you, you talk to people with grace and truth. Not with religiosity or judgment or taking a Bible and going, you need Jesus. You simply build the conversation with where they're at. You live intentionally. You spark this connection. You have great expectancy. Last thing, be willing to risk boldly. Not just risk, but that you actually risk boldly. You see, folks, if you live intentionally, if you show up expectantly and you spark these conversations, then the only question next is, you have to ask God, God, what is the next best step for this person that I'm reaching out to? For me, when it came to Melissa, it was to invite her to church because I had built a relationship with her. It was easy for me to do that. Maybe for some of you, it's to invite them to dinner. It's invite them to hear their story, for you to share their story. Maybe you're at a point where you can share God's story. But what is the next best step? Folks, spiritual maturity, if you're growing closer to God, it's when you walk through life and and you live intentionally. And you expect God to show up. And you can kind of spark these conversations and then you take the bold step you take the bold move of whatever he asks you to do and that when he asks you to do it you obey it as quickly as you can and again folks you don't do this with people with a roughness but with grace and with truth paul the guy who wrote over half of the new testament maybe the biggest risk taker the world has ever known outside of jesus himself put it this way when he would pray these things. Also pray that God will give me the right words to say. Then I will speak boldly when I reveal the mystery of the good news because I have already been doing this as Christ's representative. So pray that I speak this good news as what? What's the word? Boldly as I have. 
jarheads, this should be your prayer. Saying, God, how can I risk? How can I take a risk for you? God, give me the chance to speak boldly, and I'll speak boldly. Give me the chance to enter into a conversation boldly, and I will. But folks, if we're honest, many times what happens when we go into our workspace or our neighborhoods or our restaurants, we're not living stones, we're silent stones. What we hope is that when we walk into a place, whether it's our workplace or a restaurant, is that when we walk in, we've already prayed up and uh, we ask God to show up. And then we hope that people will walk up to us and they'll go, hey, could you tell me about Jesus? I've just been sitting here waiting for anyone. And I just wondered if you would tell me about Jesus. Folks, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. They've got to... Seeing you, that you praise God. They've got to see in you the way you care for your kids. They've got to see in you the good deeds. They've got to see in you that you're a person who forgives. That you're different from everyone else in the workplace. And that you put Jesus on display and they've got to see it first. And when they do, when they actually see it first, then what happens is they walk up to you and they go, Massive Massive oath. Like, what happened here? And then you're able to tell Jesus, you're able to tell them about him. They'll see that you expect God to show up, that you spark these conversations, that you're bold. And so let me challenge you today to be risk takers. God took the greatest risk on you when he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for you. And we're all even at the foot of the cross. Anyone can receive Christ. It's a message for anyone. And God entrusted that to us. To be the kind of people who live such a compelling story that people want to come up and they'll want to say, Massivai, what has happened here? What I'd like you to do is in your program, there should be a card that says circle of three. I'd like you to pull it out for a second. And if you need one, just raise your hand and uh, one of our greeters will get one for you. But I'd like you to pull out that card for a second. So just raise your hand if you need one. And last week, you might remember that I challenged everybody to think of a coworker, neighbor, friend, someone who is disconnected from Christ or the church, and to write those names down and to email them to me. And I've received tons of emails this week, not from everybody, but from many people. But if you're still praying about it, you're discerning who that is. Who are three people that you know that are disconnected from Christ or the church that you could pray daily for, that you could connect weekly and that you could invite regularly. And whenever you think of those people, if it's just one or two or three, email them to me and I'll pray for them, just like I prayed for dozens of names this week. And the way I'd like to close is I'd like to have you hear a story about maybe the biggest risk taker I know, and that's in 
my wife, Jen. Now, some of you are thinking right now, yeah, she took a huge risk. She married you, right? But she didn't just take a risk on me, but she often takes risks for God. She often takes risks for other people. And a year ago, we're at a soccer field, and she starts engaging with one of the soccer moms. She took a risk to build the conversation. And because of that risk, that mom and her two kids and her husband attend the jar now. The two kids accepted Christ around Christmas. The mom got baptized at Easter, and the dad is growing in his faith. And this mom now has reached out to her parents who live in Kentucky. And the dad just recently got baptized just before he was diagnosed with cancer. And so what I'd like you to do is to look at the side screens to see how a risk impacted a life and how a life has been changed. I am Shanter. I'm Jen Bunch. So the circle of three is um, any three people in your life that you might have connection with. It can be in your workplace, or it can be friends, or it can be people in your neighborhood, um, people that you just know and that you connect with regularly. And I think that's important too. And through soccer, um, Shona and I just really started connecting and became friends. And, and so when the circle of three idea came out, it wasn't like I thought, oh, Shona's in my circle of three. It was yeah. just... You know, Shauna's an important person to me, and she's my friend. And so one day I just texted her and I said, hey, you guys should come to church tomorrow. And she texted back, she's like, you're right. (laughs) We'll be there. (laughs) We had been going to a um, another church, kind of just hit and miss. And um, my kids had to sit with me, and it was just, this over, you know, when are we going to be finished? And, you know, they were, like, very fidgety, so I couldn't, like, really concentrate on what was going on or what was even being said because my kids are, like, throwing food on the floor. And um, so it actually worked out perfectly. I mean, when she had said that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's perfect. Like, my kids will go. They won't want any part of me because they love Jordan and Shiloh, you know, and upstairs they went. See you later. And no problem sense. Worked out, worked out perfectly. It's impacted my family tremendously. My parents actually came to church. I think it was Christmas. It was around Christmas. Um, and after my dad and mom went to the jar, they actually started attending a church um, in their community. And my dad was recently um, baptized, and um, now he has cancer. So, and even my kids um, last night. Um, they wanted to pray before bed, and they prayed for their papal, and those are things that my kids never really, isn't really an everyday routine for my kids, or myself, or my parents. <clears throat> so, it's worked out. You know, I love that last line. She said, it's worked out. It's worked out. And it worked out for her in such a way 
that her children have accepted Christ. She got baptized. Her dad, who now has been diagnosed with cancer, has been baptized. And, and all of this took place, folks. This wasn't brain surgery. This was just someone that was on a soccer field and noticed somebody standing by themselves and they just walked across the soccer field and said, you look like you could use a friend. And what Shauna didn't know was that, G, that Jen wasn't trying to say, I'll be your only friend. She said, I'm going to point you to the best friend that you could ever have in your life. Folks, we're talking about eternal things. Like this isn't just to show up and hear a bunch and check off church today. This is about you going to wherever you work, what school you go to, what restaurant you're at, and to allow yourself to be used by God in a powerful way. And so all of this began, folks, honestly, with Jen just praying for him. We prayed every night for eight months until Shauna was baptized. I'm not saying every other night. I'm saying every night. And this is what we prayed. On your circle of card, because many, circle of three card, many people are like, well, what do I pray for? This is what we prayed for right here, folks. We prayed, God, would you draw Shauna closer to you? That she and her family would open their heart to you and your love and truth. God, that you would help us as the Bunch family to connect with them. And that we would be used by you to lead them into a relationship with him. And God, would you grow our relationship with him? God, would you give us a chance to talk with them about Christ? And then Jen took this and she lived intentionally and she believed that God was going to show up and that a conversation would start and that she would walk boldly into that. And so now my question is, what about you? Folks, May we risk this week. May we risk in our workplace. May we risk in school. May we risk on the soccer field or whatever the places that you go to and you simply say, God, use me. Because people's eternities, folks, are on the balance and God is saying, I want to use you. And always remember this, the reason why you have to take a risk because somebody took a risk on you. He took a risk on you. Let's stand for closing prayer. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up. If you'd like prayer for anything, uh, they would love to pray with you. So you can uh, just come up and uh, get some prayer if you'd like. And uh, I'd like you right now to just turn to the person beside you and say this to them. Where are you going to risk? Go ahead. Okay? Now, tell them where you're going to risk this week, okay? Go ahead, tell them. Tell them right now. Where are you going to risk? Boy, some of you are going to take a lot of risk. You see, because it means absolutely nothing what Bunch just said if you don't take the risk. So where are you going to risk? 
Are you going to take a risk this week? Some of you are like, maybe next week. You going to take a risk this week? Just a small risk, just a small risk. Hey, let's pray. God, I pray right now that you would give courage to every single person in this place to take a risk for you this week. Help us not to be distracted. Help us not to be so focused on what we're doing that we don't see the people around us in our workplace with our coworkers. God, let us be led by your spirit and let people see something in us. May they come to us and may they say, Masavo, what's happened here? And may we joyfully be able to share with them how God took us out of darkness into light. Lord, we need you. Fill us up. Send us out with your spirit so that lives would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. Partner class, which is our member class, is at noon. You can get breakfast and then come back. Have a good week, everybody.